Welcome to recordings from We the People, Race in America, the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing's 2016 Fall Writer Series. In this series of five events, people from diverse backgrounds, working in different genres, read or performed their work and then discussed it with attentive audiences. What follows is the third event in that series, memoirist Austin Channing Brown, reading from her upcoming book about the burdens her black body carries by virtue of living and working in spaces characterized by whiteness. Recorded in the recital hall on the campus of Calvin College on November 10th, 2016. Y'all, I can't believe that one day soon there's going to be a book with my name on it. <laughs> That's bananas. <laughs> um, and though I wish I was standing up here before you in pure excitement, uh, the truth is I feel a little tender today. Um, and so I come before you as a fully human person who is feeling a range of emotions. Um, and I would just ask that you enter into that with me. Um, I am gonna do a reading that is based on drafts um, of what will one day be a book, so I did not write um, about recent events. Um, but I certainly hope that what I have written speaks to this moment nonetheless. Um, if it doesn't, then we need to have a group chat about how I can change this book. Because <laughs> that's kind of the purpose. <laughs> so, um, I am not gonna go rogue and get all black preacher and deviate from what I have written. I am actually gonna read what I have um, and look forward to the conversation afterwards. Deal? White people can be really exhausting. Particularly exhausting are white people who don't know they are white. More exhausting are white people who need to be white. But the first white people I found exhausting were those who expected me to be white. To be fair, my parents did set them up for failure. In this society where we believe a name tells us everything we need to know, about someone's race and gender, socioeconomic class and personality, my parents decided to outwit everyone. Growing up, I knew that my name, Austin, was a family namesake, gifted me from a great-grandfather I never had the pleasure of meeting. But that happens to be only half the story. It explains where my name comes from, but not why it's mine. How did I discover the real reason? through my exhaustion with a white person. At seven years old, with books piled high in my arms, my mother often had to remind me how many books I already checked out when we went to the library. While I whittled down my book pile, she counted out the cash. I am certain she felt single-handedly, I, I am certain she single-handedly kept our library funded. We always owed a fine. But how could you put a price on a great story? Awake in the wee hours of the night, curled up under warm covers with exposed cold fingers turning the pages, wanting to know what happens next, and yet never wanting the story to end. The tension was delicious, 
and produced many a library fine. As I took my place in front of the librarian to check out my books, she took my library card and scanned the back. I fully expected her to announce to the world the fine I owed for the week. Instead, she asked, is this your card? Wondering for a split second if I had my card mixed up with my mother's, I shook my head, yes, but perhaps a little hesitantly. Are you sure this card says Austin? I nodded my head emphatically and smiled. Yes, that's my card. Perhaps she was surprised that someone my age could rack up a fine like that. <laughs> As I peered over the counter, she still hadn't opened the book covers to forcefully stamp the day when I should bring them back, emphasis on should. So I waited. Are you sure this is your card? She asked again this time emphasizing sure and your, drawing them out as if they had two syllables rather than one. Now I was irritated. Does she not see all the recent books on my account? Surely this woman doesn't think I don't know my own name. But then it dawned on me. She wasn't questioning my literacy. She was another in an already long line of people who simply couldn't believe that my name belonged to me. With a sigh far too deep for my young years, I replied, yes, my name is Austin, and that is my library card. She stammered something about my name being unusual, but I didn't respond as I waited for her to hand me my books. I marched over to my mother, fuming. I demanded that she tell me why she named me Austin. By this time, I was used to white people expecting me to be male. That was made clear at every first day of school roll call. So how did I know this wasn't more of the same? Her suspicion. The fact that after answering her question about my little library card, I was not believed. I couldn't have explained it at the time, but I knew this was more than just me not being a boy. Why did you give me this name? I am sure I demanded in the most dramatic possible way. My mother was probably wondering how she managed to raise a little Judy Bloom character of her own as she repeated the story of the Austin family name. But I cut her off. Mama, I know how you came up with my name, but why did you choose it? She walked me over to some chairs and started talking in her slow, smoothing voice. Austin, your father and I had a really hard time coming up with your name. One of us thought to use your great-grandfather's last name. As we said it aloud, we both loved it. We knew that anyone who read it before meeting you would assume that you are a white man. One day, you will have to apply for colleges and jobs. We just wanted to make sure you could make it to the interview. We know once you get to the interview, you'll blow everyone away, but we had to get you to the interview. I'll be honest, I didn't fully understand what my mother was trying to tell me. The only application I had filled out at that point was probably for the library card I was holding in my hand. But one thing became clear. People's reaction to my name wasn't just about gender. It was about my brown skin. That's why the librarian didn't believe me. She didn't know a name like Austin could be stretched wide enough to cloak a little black girl. When I first learned to write my name, I had no idea I was performing a subversive act. It's almost always a window into the latent power of white supremacy. Like when I show up for a group job interview, 
I walk into the conference room. Four or five people are sitting at one end of a long table, and they start glancing at one another. They look down at my resume. They look at me. They look down at my resume. They look at me. Someone asks tentatively, you're Austin? There was always a need to double check that a black girl wasn't invited by mistake. It only lasts a moment, but it's excruciating to watch people decide what it means that I am not a white man. I watch the questions scroll through their minds. What does this mean for the program, for the, for the partners, for the donors, for the team? You see, the ideology of white supremacy, excuse me, the ideology that whiteness is supreme, better, best, desirable, normal, permeates the air we breathe. White supremacy is both tradition and religion, a tradition that must be unpacked and renounced, a religion that must be relinquished and unlearned. When this work has not been done, those who live in whiteness become oppressive, whether intentional or not. You see, those who expect me to be white have not yet learned to value blackness. But the truth is, I had to learn to love blackness, too. As a kid, I took great pride in blackness because I knew that whiteness was not mine. Most of my life has been spent in predominantly white schools and predominantly white neighborhoods. I knew whiteness was telling an incomplete story. I knew whiteness contained biases that hurt me. Perhaps because of this, I didn't realize I was nonetheless internalizing something very unhealthy. I was slowly breathing in a blackness that had to overperform. You see, I was learning that blackness was only good in as much as it was willing to mimic whiteness. As long as I mimicked its behavior, regurgitated its worldview, accepted its cultural norms, I was good. Whiteness decided what kind of blackness it wanted and how much blackness could be tolerated. Whiteness wanted enough blackness to affirm the goodness of whiteness, the progressiveness of whiteness, the well-intentionedness of whiteness. Whiteness liked the trickle of blackness, but only that which could be wielded for its own benefit. I was not sorry for being black, but I was developing a blackness that was so perfectly performed as to never make waves. I learned to not only obey the commands of whiteness, but to believe in those commands. My blackness was good as long as it wasn't loud or disruptive. My blackness was good as long as it was well-educated or had a good job or performed morality as whiteness desired. My blackness was stringent and monolithic until I turned 10. At 10 years old, I started spending summers in Cleveland, Ohio. My parents were divorced and my mom had moved out, returning to her hometown, a black suburb right outside of Cleveland called Warrensville Heights. Every summer, my brother and I moved from a predominantly white Christian space into an all-black secular space. It was the first time I had ever been in the majority outside of my home. It was glorious and terrifying. I didn't understand the culture I had just landed in, and I was not prepared. I had no idea there were more line dances than just the electric slide. <laughs> I heard students and adults cussing like it was an art form. I had never heard of the dozens and thought my peers were being cruel the first time I overheard this game of wits. 
There were no games reciting uh, the, the books of the Bible. In this joint, I had to learn to play spades. You see, I knew about Luther Vandross, but I had no idea who Bobby Brown was or why Whitney Houston shouldn't marry him. I knew the electric slide, but not the butterfly. I knew the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, but I had no idea what Candyman was about. During day camp, I remember saying Candyman or Bloody Mary five times in the bathroom mirror as instructed by the girls around me. On the fifth time, they all screamed, so I screamed too. I had no idea what I was supposed to be afraid would appear from the shadows. The truth is, the only thing I truly feared was being discovered. So I was incredibly hurt when I was called an Oreo for the first time, black on the outside, white on the inside. Truthfully, it wasn't the word that hurt. I was hurt because I had worked so hard to hide the culture of whiteness that was dripping from my body and pouring from my throat. But it wasn't working, and they didn't mind saying so. I knew I would never fit into whiteness, and I was okay with that. I had no desire to be white, but I didn't know how to handle the loss of blackness. Where would I belong? I was too white for black people and too black for white people. I had a boy's name and bad acne. It was terrible. <laughs> At first. Just when I thought I'd never fit anywhere, blackness created space for me. I found a friend. Tiffany lived four houses down from my mother. We were the same age, but that and our blackness was about all we had in common. She was short and spunky, self-confident and playful. She was loud and cussed and taught me quite a bit about boys. She was everything I was not. She was everything that good blackness wasn't supposed to be. She was everything I needed. Whether she knew it or not, she was my teacher. She taught me about music and dances. She taught me about Ebonics and pop culture. She taught me about playing with neighborhood kids and running around outside till the street lights came on. She danced with me, she played with me, and she vouched for me. She believed in my blackness, and because she did, I could too. Tiffany didn't just teach me about black culture, she taught me that I could embrace new things about blackness without being stripped of my own identity. I learned how to do the butterfly. I almost won a dance contest that year, I'll have you know. But I still preferred reading to playing neighborhood kickball. I easily fell into Ebonics but never mastered the dozens. I didn't see Candyman until I was grown. Tiffany was my bridge to understanding and appreciating the varying examples of blackness. She taught me that black is beautiful whether it looked nerdy like me or cool like her. I learned that blackness is expansive, that I could choose what felt right for me without needing to be like everyone else or needing everyone else to be like me. I didn't need the approval of whiteness. There was no whiteness available to offer an opinion. There were no white girls in our hopscotch games, and it was freedom. I couldn't hear it when I first landed in Cleveland, but blackness was screaming, I thought rather harshly, there is another way. Another way of speaking, of thinking, of being. That whiteness need not affirm in order to be valuable. My way of speaking sounded a lot like my white classmates, but that was not the only way to communicate. In fact, among the other kids, it wasn't the most valuable way to communicate. There was more than what I knew, more than what whiteness said was right. Lesson learned.
My summers in Cleveland would not be the only space where I would finally be in the majority. Not long after Cleveland began to challenge me, my dad started going to church, a black church. Until this moment, all I knew of worship services were our school chapels on Friday afternoons. This was not that. I had no idea when I stepped into this church that I would be meeting black Jesus, and I fell in love. I fell in love with robed choirs and soaring voices and singing songs that were never sung the same way twice. I fell in love with peppermint-dealing church mothers and hymn-singing deacons. I fell in love with fiery preaching that moved so deep it pushed you to your feet in praise. I fell in love with a Jesus who saw the poor, a Jesus who had bigger plans for me than keeping me a virgin, a Jesus who cared about injustice in the world, a Jesus who saw and loved and reveled in our blackness. The black church gave me the greatest sense of belonging I had ever experienced. There was still much to learn, speaking in tongues, being slain in the spirit, prophetic announcements, these were all new to me. <laughs> but they didn't scare me because I was already primed to enjoy various expressions of blackness. It was love at first sight. I loved the black church and she loved me. Blackness came slowly for me over time in layers but it found me, it found me, and it changed my life. This is the power of blackness. Blackness changes and creates, it expands and contracts, it makes new and renews, it defines culture, gets bored, and does it again. It creates words and music styles and dance moves. But no matter how it evolves, there is one thing that stays the same. Blackness imagines. Blackness imagines beyond current realities. It experiences enslavement and imagines emancipation. It experiences Jim Crow and imagines civil rights. It experiences the worst in the world and imagines better. It changes generations. It's a shame whiteness tries so hard to police it because blackness is always changing the world. One of the biggest failures of racial reconciliation in white spaces is the same problem I had at 10 years old. I had a very specific idea of what blackness should be in order to be good. Racial reconciliation is impossible without loving the expanse that is blackness. Blackness is inherently beautiful, inherently valuable. Blackness reveals something specific about humanity, something beautiful about God. Without appreciating blackness, there will be no racial reconciliation, only a tug-of-war of assimilation and appropriation. Love of blackness as it is, not as whiteness hopes it will be, is a prerequisite for racial reconciliation. And this is our choice, to love blackness or continue dishing out the death sentence of anti-blackness cultivated over centuries. I know some believe this work to be unnecessary, divisive, manipulative, overkill. What they usually mean is uncomfortable. Let me be the first to say, it's no picnic for me either. But dispelling the lies is the result of seeking truth. And so we must talk about slavery. We must be thorough in our assessment of the bodies snatched from dirt and sand to be chained in a cell. 
we must be thorough in our understanding of the mass kidnapping called the Middle Passage. We must confront the humanity, the emotions, the heartbeat of the multiple generations who were born into slavery and died in slavery, who never tasted freedom in America's land. For this is the foundation on which the ideology of black inferiority was founded. And then we must move on to reckon with the Civil War, necessary because so many were willing to die in order to hold the freedom of others in their hands. The war created a new law. It did not create new hearts. And so the idea that black people were stupid and childish and therefore in need of masters gave way to the lie that black people were criminal, deceptive, suspicious bodies to be feared, bodies to be separated and demeaned. And these lies congealed into Jim Crow. Typically, we paint this 100-year history of Jim Crow as mean signage, enforced in mean ways. But those signs weren't just mean. They were a perpetual reminder of the swift humiliation and brutal violence that could be suffered in the presence of whiteness at any moment. Jim Crow was constant and consistent disenfranchisement. Under Jim Crow, everything a black body built could immediately be interrupted or disrupted by a white person on a power trip. Jim Crow meant no legal recourse for any injustice. Jim Crow meant mob violence, burned down homes, white riots, lynched bodies every couple of days. It meant having no rights that white people were bound to acknowledge or respect. Jim Crow was not just drinking out of separate water fountains. Jim Crow was measuring every breath, lest your heartbeat thump too hard across the color line. But black women grew tired of being tired and started to organize, giving birth to the civil rights movement. Though the movement produced many rights for black people and other people of color, the lies that black dignity must first be approved by whiteness remained. You see, the civil rights movement wasn't all glory. It was hard-fought battles against hatred. There was spitting and shouting, pulling and tugging, slurs and signs, clubs and dogs, bombs and guns. It was with great vitriol that the rights of black Americans were fought against. It must be acknowledged that for two decades, whiteness fought against every right black Americans sought, from sitting at lunch counters, to sitting in integrated classrooms, from voting to organizing, from the right to boycott to the right to sit anywhere on a bus. There were few victories that did not first contain bloodshed. And we could go on. We could go on to talk about segregation and ghettos, how the North's moral persuasion turned to violent hysteria as the Great Migration unfolded. We could talk about the interlocking systems used to keep black people confined by railroads and rivers and roads. We could talk about the real estate brokers, the bank tellers, the landlords, the insurance agents, the attorneys and judges, the government officials and police officers who daily laid the gates to create 
and maintain the ghetto. We could talk about red lines drawn around maps to note disinvestment and lost causes. We could acknowledge the millions of dollars stolen from black neighborhoods through housing contract sales, violence, policing, and exorbitant rent. We could have the courage to name our own history, to study it, examine it, dig into it, and thereby uproot all that our false narratives have taught us. We could connect the racial injustices we care about today to the histories of our country. We could connect our own thoughts and feelings about blackness to the history of this country. We could give ourselves the best chance possible to lay claim to the thing we profess to love the most about this country, freedom but it is the truth that will set us free. I wish we lived like we believe this. Instead, we live as if we will be snatched by the ghosts of the past by walking through the valley of the shadow of death. So instead, we walk around the valley, we talk around the valley. We speak of the valley with cute euphemisms. We just have so many divisions in this country. If we could just get better at diversity, we'd be so much better off. We're experiencing some cultural changes. We don't like to name the full weight of the evil white supremacy has done. But I still have hope. I have hope because you are reading the words on this page though they cause great discomfort. I have hope because many of you shout with abandon that black lives do matter. I have hope because of our community, our solidarity. I have hope because I still believe in the work of the Holy Spirit to transform us, to transform lives, to transform the world. The Holy Spirit has always been enough. And is this not the work of the Holy Spirit to illuminate truth and inspire transformation? And perhaps I have hope simply because I don't want to do this work alone. I want to do it with a community of many, a community who is too tired of the status quo to be afraid anymore a community who is willing to go to the hard places of history, a community that wants to uproot white supremacy and throw it in a trash heap. I long for a community who no longer wants to be ruled by the false narratives of the past, but desires to become a renewed creation. And I believe deeply that we are being the church when we join with the Holy Spirit and insist that marginalized bodies be uplifted, that hated bodies be loved, and that black lives matter.
Hi, Lisa. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm okay. I'm among friends. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. Um, thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. All right. Well, we imagine that right now we're going to talk about <laughs> some of the authors that have influenced Austin's writing. I feel like we just sit here for a few minutes. Be fine. Um, You talked about growing up, going to a predominantly white Christian school. <laughs> you feel me? I hear you. Yeah, thanks. If we were in a black church, they would start praying right now. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone feel free to turn around. Sorry, sorry we don't want to meet the check guys. Sorry. It's not um, and, and we talked earlier, you said there, there were not a lot of African-Americans represented in the curriculum. Correct. When were you first introduced to black writers? How did that, what was your introduction like? You know, my, um, my mother was actually very intentional. My mother loves, loves, loves reading. Um, our home always looked like a library, as you gathered from what I just read. Um, and so she was always very intentional um, about making sure that there were black writers in our household, but she never said that explicitly. So she was reading Black Voices to me, but I was kind of unaware that that's what was happening. And so it actually wasn't until my father got remarried um, and my stepmom is an English professor, an English teacher in high school, for high school. And um, when she brought all of her books, um, I realized looking in the bookshelf um, that so many of them were black. And one of the first ones was actually Alice Walker. Uh, mm -hmm. And um, she was the first one that I picked up and I was like, oh, this is clearly written by a black woman. Um, and it was um, the color purple. Now, I'm gonna be honest, y'all, I was maybe 13-ish, so I didn't make it past the first chapter the first time. <laughs> it's like, this is intense. <laughs> I don't think I'm old enough to read this. <laughs> but it was a huge aha um, that there are black women writers telling black women stories and um, something sparked. I couldn't have named it at the time, but I remember, I remember actually often going back to the bookstore and like the bookshelf and like touching it, like just needing to like acknowledge its existence. Um, you mentioned um, among the authors that you discovered mm -hmm. was Sean Gay. Yes. And um, that you read every year for colored girls who have considered suicide when the rainbow is not enough. Mm. Talk to us about discovering this poem slash play in a book form. My stepmom, as I mentioned, is an English teacher. And there was a passage from this book that she used, to, that she knew by heart, and she would recite it all the time. I had no idea this is where it came from, but I'm gonna read just like a teeny tiny little piece of it. Um, I'm gonna start from the beginning, I'm sorry. <clears throat> Without any assistance or guidance from you, I have loved you assiduously for eight months, two weeks, and a day. I have been stood up four times, left seven packages on your doorstep, 40 poems, two plants, and three handmade note cards. I left town so I could send to you, but you have been no help to me. 
On my job, you call at three in the morning on weekdays so I could drive 27 and a half miles across the bay before I go to work. Charming, charming, but you are of no assistance. I want you to know this was an experiment to see how selfish I could be. If I would really carry on to snare a possible lover, if I was capable of debasing myself for the love of another, if I could stand not being wanted when I wanted to be wanted, and I cannot. So with no further assistance and no guidance from you, I am ending this affair. My stepmom, <laughs> my stepmom used to quote this to me because she was like trying to give me a backbone, right? But I had no idea this is where it came from. So it was probably in college that I opened this book and was like, <laughs> these are words I remember from like nine years old. Um, and I'll be honest, it's a, it's a choreo poem um, that follows black women who are unnamed. They are noted only by the color that they wear. And their stories are not linear, so it's not like you open the book and you read all about the woman in red, and then you read all about the woman in blue, and then you read all about the one. Like, their stories are like, first you're gonna read it, and then you're gonna read a piece of this one, and then you're gonna come back to that one, and then you're gonna, right? All that to say, the first time I read it, I didn't get it. I did not understand what I was reading. I was like, what is happening in here? But the older I got, the themes in this book started to resonate in new and deeper ways. Um, so this book discusses um, sexual assault. It discusses war. It talks about love. Um, it talks about being loved wrongly. Um, and the, 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 um, it talks about becoming, like becoming a black girl. It talks about abortion. Um, it just goes to some really, really hard places. But rather than judging, rather than thinking, rather than arguing, this book just feels, it just feels. It's just like in the head of a black woman. This is what's going through the head of a black woman. And every time I read it, I find something new. And it reminds me that my story is connected to a larger story of black womanhood. So I read it at least once a year. Black women in this audience. Once a year, I'm telling you. <laughs> Good for your soul. A book that's come out more recently that we've also talked about has been really informing this book that you are working on right now is Ta-Nehisi Coates' Between the World and Me. Um, talk a little bit about how that work specifically is informing your book project. Can we just talk about my obsession with Let's just talk about this. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, pure obsession. It's ridiculous. <laughs> it is. It is absolutely ridiculous. You and a few others. All right. At least I'm not alone. Um, so Coates' writing is very, um, is, first of all, his writing itself is a work of art. This man can write. He, he, I wish he would write the phone book. This man could make the phone book sound real good. <laughs> um, and I, I say this often, um, but Ta-Nehisi has not one extra word in his book. Every single word in that book is working. There's no paragraphs to skip. There's no like description you could just get on by to get to the good part, right? Like every word is working. And so for one, like that in and of itself is amazing to me and is something I certainly aspire to do. So when I edit, I'm like, can this word go? <laughs> can this word go? Um, but he also writes um, very graphically about the black experience. And unfortunately, that's something that I'm not sure a lot of Christian writers do well. 
they don't talk about the body well. They talk about the spirit beautifully. But they don't talk about the body well. They don't talk about who we are right now very well. They don't talk about the pain we're experiencing today very well. And so I'm really inspired by him to talk about the body in clear ways that can be felt, um, that move the spirit, right, that begin with the body. Sure, mm -hmm. sure. And then one more author that you had, you had mentioned you want to talk about um, is Audre Lorde. Mm. Um, talk about how her work has been informing your thinking now for a while. Yeah, so um, Audre Lorde is a black um, woman writer. She is, was um, also lesbian, and so she had a whole extra layer of outsiderness um, than even that I possess. And so the, the work that I return to often is called Sister Outsider. Um, and in it, she has a really, well, all of them are powerful, but one in particular um, is an essay called The Uses of Anger. Women, y'all gotta pick up this book. <laughs> Woo! Um, so Audre Lorde, well first, I think, she opens by saying, racism makes me angry. If we can't all snap for that, I just don't know what the point is. <laughs> right? You know what I'm saying? Um, but then she goes on to talk about how anger is a tool, is a resource that women should stop denying themselves. She talks about the creative potential of anger. She talks about how anger is destructive most when it is kept silent not when it is working in the world. She speaks of anger as the starter of revolutions, as the reimagining process, as the way we get to describe the world both as it is, but what is wrong with it. It is part of the reimagining that we do. That anger is a tool to be wielded, to be used mindfully, yes, but to be used nonetheless. And I am so grateful <laughs> for that because there are so many times when as women we are told that our anger is wrong. And Audre Lorde is like, mm. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. And she also, um, I actually really encourage you to read it because she also spends a lot of time talking about um, unity between women, particularly between white women and women of color and how we have to stop using our anger to destroy one another and instead use our anger to build bridges between one another. Um, and so again, even though Audre Lorde is not writing in a Christian context, I think she does one of the better jobs of talking about in the real world what it would look like to use anger towards unity. Great. All right, I think this would be a great time to open it up to questions from the audience. If anyone out there has questions they'd like to give for Austin. Anyone? Here, I'll just. Thanks. How should we better open up a space for the LGBTQ plus um, community um, especially in communities of color. Mm -hmm. How do we talk about intersectionality without it making it seem like we're burying other issues? Yeah. Boy, intersectionality is so important and so hard. 
because we all experience those intersections differently, right? And I think because we lack spaces to talk about how we're being impacted by racism or sexism or homophobia or a whole host of other issues, uh, when the space is created, we often compete in order to make ours more visible or the most visible um, because we feel them so strongly and because we lack other places to be able to talk about that. Um, and so I think one of the things that we have to do is create more spaces to talk about intersectionality overall. I think we have to get better at it. I think we have to get better at expecting intersectional conversations. Um, I think we also have to do what Audre Lorde talks about in the uses of anger, which is to understand the oppression of others even when we don't experience it ourselves. And so I am straight, but I can certainly say, and now I would like to hear from my <laughs> LGBTQ sister, right? Um, that we can create space for one another um, so that there is no competition. It is only, if we're gonna have a competition, it should be how many issues can we uplift today? How complicated can we make this? <laughs> right, like not how simple can we make it, but just how complicated can we get tonight? <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm so sorry. You were talking about how blackness is imaginative and the fact that we can't, like, white people like myself cannot reconcile that imaginativeness will lead us to, like, situations like we're in now. And what I've seen over the past few days is, like, is horror, but also a sense of hope. And, like, just listening to your writing I, I don't know, I sort of feel like the narratives at Calvin often look for like reconcil reconciliation before like even like addressing these like things that are happening like in dorms, in whatever, in our heads. And it's so obvious. And like today and yesterday, just like, it's so obvious the pain that like the people are feeling. And, but like there's like, I just still feel like there's no, vi like there's, there's conversations like this, there's like conversations that are happening like in small groups with people here at Calvin mm -hmm. and like this is like, you saying that you want a body of people where you're not alone and like where you're being heard, like we need you guys' voice and we are s so sorry, like and for the people who haven't recognized this already, like, just, <laughs> you know? And I, I don't know. I don't even know if this is a question. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, you're gonna get me in trouble talking about Calvin. <laughs> I gotta keep my job till May, y'all. I just gotta keep it at least until May. <laughs> my supervisor's in the back. <laughs> um, um, nonetheless, um, 
because I've been fired before. It wouldn't be the first time, y'all. It wouldn't be the first time. Um, so I'm going to go there. I'm going to go there. So I went to uh, North Park University, which is in Chicago. And North Park University um, attracts a very different kind of student than Calvin does. And I think it has largely to do with the fact that it's in like a major city, right? So we come with uh, something of an attitude, if you will. We come with a certain level of defiance, um, a certain level of expectation, a certain uh, fire um, that I don't often experience in mass at Calvin. So one of the first things that I noticed about Calvin, so let me paint two pictures. So at North Park University, which is uh, was, I don't, I don't know what the numbers are anymore, um, but when I was a student there, um, was, um, had very low numbers of faculty and staff of color. The chapel service was all white all the time. Um, uh, the year before I got there, um, the like big blow up on campus, maybe it wasn't the year before, but it, within four years of me having um, arrived on campus, there had been a huge blowout about swastikas being written on doors in dormitories. But North Parkers responded by holding rallies, by organizing events and daring the vice president not to show up, um, by, um, by having meeting after meeting after meeting with the worship leaders until they decided to change the chapel services, um, that there was whatever issue we cared about, we were bringing it to administration and we dared them to ignore us. At Calvin, in the couple of years that I've been here, I have never been to more vigils and morning services in my life. <laughs> But that has like the lament, like I hear that all the time, the lament, we're gonna lament, we're gonna come and lament, we're gonna have candles and lament, we're gonna meet in a chapel and lament, we're gonna gather on the common and lament. Like we are always lamenting here. <laughs> and there's a place for that, <laughs> but after the lamentation is supposed to be action. And the truth is, I just haven't seen a lot of that action, um, that organizing, and that's not entirely the fault of students because you're students. Right? <laughs> like, like you also need people to teach you how to do that and to lead the way. Um, but I wish there was more of that fire. I wish there was more of that, like, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired, and this is what I'm gonna do about it. Join me, right? Um, yeah. I wish I saw more of that at Coven. <sighs> Becky, I'm not fired, am I? Okay. Hi. <laughs> um, I, I got my Christian ethics from people like Yoder and Howaras, and then I read Bell Hooks. <laughs> Slightly and, different. And suddenly I understood a little bit about Jesus. Yeah. And then I listened to James Cone talk about the lynching tree. And I understood a little bit about the cross. Yeah. And growing up in inner city Detroit and being able to understand Jesus through blackness or my observations mm -hmm. of what 
all that that might be. And seeing Jesus through blackness and giving up privilege, the question that I bring is, when a white male begins to preach that Jesus is known through blackness and that white folks have to give up privilege, what happens to the movement if white liberals stop being liberal and radically give up the pursuit of power and give up the pursuit? We benefit from racism. Institutionalized racism won't be overturned as long as we continue to accept the benefits. Or is that untrue? What does it look like for white allies to reject seeking out power and suddenly shut things down? The only thing that comes to mind is that blacks and blackness is used to the suffering and that whites will quit. I mean, I know this. <laughs> That's, you know this. But whites seem, seem not to accept the kind of sacrifice that may be necessary for our own salvation to be seen in blackness. Can we quit to win? What does that do to the movement if we all of a sudden say, we reject the power, Trump can have it, we quit on you. What, what do, can we take that step in faith or is that just giving up? Ooh, oh, white people. <laughs> um, I feel like it first needs to be acknowledged that I am not white. And that some of this, y'all gonna have to figure out on your own. But such as I have, give I thee. Um, so <clears throat> if I speak like almost academically about this first, um, there are two, predominantly, two predominant ways that most people um, who are white allies think about privilege. One is to use it, and the other is to give it up. Truthfully, I have not yet landed on opinion on which is better. Maybe if more white people did it, I would have an opinion. <laughs> right? I could be like, well, here's a case study here, and there's a case study there, and now I can make my decision. Um, at this point, I'd be grateful for either. Like, just pick one. Pick one. Either use it or give it up. Um, but I think regardless, I, I, I think we're all figuring it out. I think we're all figuring it out. I have been writing a blog for a long time and people really like to use the word prophetic and I don't fully understand what that means. It makes me a little nervous. But the truth it does, the good things didn't happen to prophets, you guys. I just, I feel, I feel lots of feelings about that. Um, but the truth is that I have no crystal ball. I have no, all I know is that God is marching towards justice. All I know is that the kingdom is coming. That's what I know. And you can participate in that or you cannot. And if it makes sense for you to participate as someone who uses your privilege and that seems to be working, praise God. And if you participate as someone who is giving up privilege, who is letting go, um, who is offering positions, um, to 
uh, people of color, two folks in the LGBT community, two people of a different religion from us, then fabulous. But I think, I, I wish I had time to police that. The truth is, I'm still living over here trying to convince folks to do it at all and trying to imagine exactly what you said, that there is more than what this world offers to stop being seduced by the power of this world, to stop being seduced by money, to stop being seduced by greed, to stop being seduced at all, and to recognize the brokenness that is whiteness, the brokenness of their own soul, and to choose something different, to choose the imaginativeness of blackness. And in that, I mean blackness, not just as like me as a black woman, but blackness is separate from whiteness. Blackness that is full, right? Whereas whiteness is empty. Whiteness has been a giving up of your own ethnic identity, right? Whiteness has been grabbing hold of the power, of money, of land, of right, of things. And the opposite of that, of blackness, would then be to grab hold of people, of hearts, of minds, of souls, and for that to be the most important thing. So I don't have a good answer for that, <laughs> except to say that I am glad to have people who are asking the question and who are working towards, whether they choose use it or lose it, um, who are working towards it nonetheless. Hi, Austin. Hi. Um, so this has been the longest two days of my life, hey, as for sister. many of us. Yeah. Um, and I think for me, what I'm thinking is like, as an upperclassman and person of color, and as well as our faculty of color and professors of color, we have kind of had to be those mentors, be those people that, that kind of hold <laughs> the campus together, hold the people of color together, and other people who are hurting. Um, but at the same time, we're hurting too, and we feel hopeless, but sometimes we feel like we have to cover that up because we don't want to make it worse. Um, so I guess my, and I'm sure you're feeling these things too, of like, in private, I'm not feeling that great, but people are coming to me crying, and what do I do with that? How do I address that? Um, so yeah, I guess I'm asking, how has that been for you? How has that process slash any tips? <laughs> None. No, I'm kidding. Um, so um, my husband is the audience, so I can't lie. Because <laughs> he would claw my bluff. Um, so truth, the truth is, I was hurt long before the election was called. I was hurt by the mere, um, by the closeness of it. That we were so close was enough to break my spirit. And so I went to sleep before it had been called, about 1.30 in the morning or so, um, and I cried myself to sleep. And then I heard my husband get up in the morning and check his phone, and he was silent. And I knew what had happened. And then I checked my phone and saw that there was a text message from our own Sarah Visser that just said, I love you. And I knew. And nonetheless, I still hopped on Google and searched election results and saw those fateful words. And I cried all morning in my bed. I wasn't sure I was going into work. I wasn't sure I was putting on clothes. I really contemplated just 
being in the safety of my bed for the entire day. Um, <clears throat> and then I got a message from one of my former RAs and he asked if he could meet me in my office later today. And I said, sure, I'll be there at one o'clock. And that's the only reason I got out of bed. Uh, <clears throat> to be a woman of color is to constantly be living between endless rage, fierce sadness, and tremendous defiance. And it's okay to experience all three, <laughs> sometimes in the same day. So I experienced great sadness in the morning, but I got out of bed using defiance. And then I experienced great anger as I continued to unpack what the heck had just happened, and then I went back to sadness. And then I realized I had to give a talk today, and I moved into defiance. <laughs> and this is our life. This is, what, this is what we do. And my first tip is to not apologize for it. If you're feeling defiant and you want to educate all the people on how you're feeling, boo, do that. <laughs> but if what you need is to weep and cry, then weep and cry and find a safe place to do that. Find a safe place to do that. You, um, for those who are Christian in this room, we serve a God who cried. And if the person who is holding the entire universe together can cry, then I'm thinking I can cry too. <laughs> That's what I think. Um, <clears throat> pay attention to your own body. Pay attention to your spirit. Pay attention to what God is calling you to do. Sometimes he is calling you to work in the world and sometimes he is calling you to God's self. And nobody can do that work for you. That's work that you have to cultivate. You have to cultivate when God is calling you to the world and when God is calling you to just be with God. I think that is probably the best place to end it for tonight. Um, is Eric in the room? Eric, the director of our Africana and Africana Diaspora, Diaspora program is going to close us in prayer tonight. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we thank thee first of all for this gathering tonight that we can hear this beautiful, beautiful soul Give us these wonderful yet challenging words. We, we are thankful for our witness. We're thankful for her presence among us here on this campus. We're thankful for Tommy. Mm. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to bless both of them in their work. And Lord, we, we come to this space on this night Many of us, if not all of us, with heavy hearts and 
Some of us are carrying fear with us and dread and hopelessness, and we just don't know what the days ahead are going to bring. But Lord, we are thankful that we are yours. And the president-elect is not the king of kings. He's not the Lord of lords. But we are safe in the arms of Jesus. Mm. And Lord, we pray that you would alleviate the fears that we have. Strengthen us, O Lord. Give us the courage by the Spirit to withstand the wiles of the devil. Whatever those wiles will come against us, Lord, we pray that we would use the, the sword of the Spirit and the shield of faith to deflect those fiery darts. And Lord, we pray that you will be a hedge of protection around us, for we don't know what is lurking around the corners, even in this community. So Lord, we just pray that you would be with us, that you would strengthen us, that you would just be that fence around us, not only this night, but in the days to come. And Lord, we can pray that you are father for the fatherless. You are mother for the motherless, O oh Lord. Comfort us as we are lonely. Lift up our bowed-down heads. Mend our broken hearts. Give us strength to fight. For we don't fight in our own strength, but we fight in the strength given to us by the Spirit sent from above. So bless us tonight, Lord, as we leave. Bless this institution, bless this community, give peace to this institution. But Lord, we pray that there will be peace in this land. Yes, God. A peace that surpasses all understanding. We pray for the peace of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. Thank you also to our many sponsors, African and African Diaspora Studies at Calvin College, Ambrose at WIMCAT, the Asian Studies Program at Calvin College, Brazos Press, the Calvin Center for Community Engagement and Global Learning, the Calvin College Campus Store, the Calvin College Associate Dean for Diversity and Inclusion, the Calvin College History Department, the Calvin College Office of the Provost, the Calvin College Department of Sociology and Social Work High-Ends Fund, the Calvin College Student Life Division, the Calvin Theater Company, the Christian Reformed Church's Office of Social Justice, event and tech services at Calvin College, the Paul B. Henry Institute at Calvin College, and Schuler Books and Music. You can find more recordings from the 2016 Fall Writer Series and learn more about the work of the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing at our website, ccfw.calvin.edu.